listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, the score is changing today. It is now Jason to Jeff 934. All right. Keep taking your game up, buddy. I actually got our guest to join us today, which doesn't happen very often, which is why I wanted to say that. So, so Can we I are, say something, we are, Jason? Jason? Yeah. No. Your batting average is low, but when you do hit, you have a high slugging percentage. <laughs> What's the cool statistic they keep track of now? It's, it's, not, it's not batting average, right? It's on base percentage. Yes. Yeah, so OPS. OPS. So that's on my... base percentage plus slugging percentage. Oh, OPS. That's the reason I don't watch baseball anymore. All right. So we are pleased to welcome Mark Littlewood. Mark is the CEO of the Business of Software. And he's here to join us just to talk about sort of the state of the industry. And, and we're going to get into a lot of really cool stuff. So first off, welcome, Mark. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Why don't you just give us a quick intro to you and the business of software? Because if people aren't familiar with it, I want them to know about it because it's a super cool conference business that you run that I've been following for, for a very long time. Well, hot diggity dang, as they say in uh, your uh, part of the world. I'm not sure whether... I'm going to pull your Quidditch percentages down or oh, not, yes. but whatever that, that was baseball. <laughs> I'm really, really pleased to be here and talking to you both. So I'm Mark Littlewood. I know that's probably quite a funny name in the States. I've spent quite a lot of time over there. I run business software. We are a conference and event business. We run conferences in the States and in Europe that are designed to help people build great products and great companies. We were founded about 17 years ago by a friend of mine, Neil Davidson, who set up his own software company, built it very successfully, and it got to about 40 people. And he decided he didn't have a clue what he was doing. And <laughs> thought he would go to some conferences to learn. And at the time, all of the tech conferences were either about starting up or raising angel funding or IPO. There was lots and lots of finance stuff, lots of tech stuff. There was really nothing about how you actually pull all the bits of a company together and, and do something. So he wrote a list of people he'd really like to learn from and got hold of them and said he was running a conference and invited them along to speak. And that was people like Joel Spolsky, Jeffrey Moore, Don Norman, Kathy Sierra, all sorts of really interesting people in yeah. the industry. And I got involved to run it and have been running it ever since. We transitioned online. We've always been doing online activity of one sort or another, and we always thought it was a great thing to do. And it was always on the back burner in terms of, this is a great thing. We must go off and do more online stuff. And then we had this wonderful opportunity to do exactly that in March <laughs> 2020 and moved everything online, really sat down, really thought very hard about what people come to our events for, because I think they come for different things to a lot of conferences, redesigned the events from the from the ground up. And that's been super successful, actually. And now we're back doing in-person things, but we've got a new product line, which is really rather nice. And you have what, I think eight online conferences this year and three in person? Is that, are my numbers right? That's pretty good. So we have six online conference summits. So they're one day events. And then we have our European conference, which was in April, which was really a 
test the water activity to see what going back into in-person would be like. And then our business software USA is coming up in Boston in just over a month. So we haven't done one of those for three years. So super excited to be back in person and and talking to people in real life and seeing them in real life. Real humans doing real human stuff. I know. I know. It was funny in uh, April when we were doing the European one. It was almost, you know, it was almost nice to smell the BO. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't be a software conference, right? Okay. You have a unique perspective. Like you said, you have been running this business of software conference for you know, a long time. So why don't you give us kind of like a view from above? Talk to us about the state of the software industry, how it's changed over the last 10, 15 years. Kind of what have you seen? How has this, the business of software, I mean, you know, how has it evolved? How has it changed? Well, it's a big question. How long have you got? Uh, yeah, easy um, one, right? So, let's start with a softball, huh? It started out. So, I mean, if we go back 15 years ago, it was relatively hard to build a software company. And on some levels, it was easier in in others. But things were very expensive to get going. You typically would need to have access to funds to set up servers and all of the infrastructure that you would need to build a company. And I'd say that starting a business 15 years ago was harder. Scaling it was easier. Fast forward 15 years With all of the innovation and all of the changes in the way that software is is pretty much a delivered service, a a SaaS or whatever version of AAS that you can think of, it's very cheap. Now, you can get going, you can write some code, you can put it up, you can drop it into AWS or Azure or any one of an almost infinite number of places where you can host things very cheaply and you can get going. So I think the way that people think about the industry has has changed. It's incredibly easy to get started. It's got much harder to scale. And I think if I go back 15 years, there are all sorts of companies that have been founded now and grown and are, are now very significant, everything from companies like Shopify, you know, HubSpot, all, all sorts of you know, very well-established organizations now that grew at a time where it was not easy to grow, but there was relatively little competition. Now there seems to be this thing that Anyone can start a business. Everyone has to have at least three side hustles or you're not a real person. (laughs) You can get these things going and you can get something up and you say, oh, I've got three seven-figure businesses or or whatever it is. You You can get up and you can get going at a very, very simply. The market now is much more competitive. 10, 15 years ago, HubSpot were one of the only games in town. 10, 15 years ago, if you wanted, pick a boring niche industry and I love them because they're fantastically valuable but I don't know optician appointment setting for example 10-15 years ago there'll be no one doing it and the challenge would be actually getting in front of those people and showing them why having something that actually works for customers and works for you as a, a service business is a good thing. Now your challenge is that you have to be found and opticians know that they want an appointment setting service and they have to Google you and you're competing for AdWords and marketing and mind space amongst all sorts of other types of organizations. So I think that's probably the biggest single difference is harder to start, 
easier to scale in the old days, easier to start, harder mm-hmm. to scale. And all sorts of other things have happened. There's been a huge amount of money piled into tech. Tech was one of the few sectors that weathered the COVID pandemic storm uh, pretty successfully, unless you were producing advertising inventory sales for uh, hotel rooms or something, which, in which case you're probably not doing so well. But you know, for a lot of tech companies, the pandemic was fantastic. Yeah. There were a lot of collaboration tools, a lot of online you know, communication, collaboration, anything that can help you do your job without being tied down to uh, an office has been a, a fantastic thing. Prices have gone up of people. The cost of people everywhere has grown very significantly. So you used to be able to get an advantage by if you had some clear development priorities and you had some clear work that you could outsource, you you could take it offshore and find a really decent place to get stuff done with a significant price advantage and and so you could play off that that's less the case now it's still still is a a different thing but there's a lot that's changed and i think you know at the root of a lot of this is money yeah that was where i wanted to go next actually so i'm glad you you said money because i was going to say the same thing let's talk about money yeah how much am i being paid (laughs) in terms of financing you know you you set this up evolution of financing so so how has that changed? And I'm actually even curious, you know, longer term and shorter term, you know, you, you know, I don't know the, the data off the top of my head, but the, the tech sector and the publicly traded tech sector has been hammered for the first six months of the year. So I'm just curious, you know, has that changed the economics of, of startups, of bootstraps, of private funding? Like, you know, what's going on in the in the universe as it relates to to funding software right now? So it's a really interesting question. And rather than answer it, I'll do like a politician thing. Um, and rather than answer it directly and talk about what's happening now, because you know, honestly, it's moving so quickly that I'm probably not close enough to what's going on in particular parts of the US. I can talk broadly about it. You may have noticed that my accent is from sort of East New York, sort of three and a half thousand miles east of New York. Um, we actually, we, we run a, a conference in Boston, our business of software conference USA, and it's always in Boston. And I always have to say that I'm from proper Cambridge. So people know where I'm from when I'm over there. Europe and the UK are quite lucky from the perspective of this this question. They're slightly behind what's going on in the States. I don't think there's any doubt that a lot of the real venture capital as a as an asset class in tech was built and founded on the West Coast. And so Europe has it's caught up, but I've been involved in that world for probably 20 years now. And while there were a bunch of investors of all sorts and stripes that popped up in the late 90s investing in internet businesses that have all disappeared because they invested in terrible ideas. If you kind of go back to 2000 or so, in the UK, if you had a significantly ambitious founder that wanted to build a large company with venture capital funding, there were probably 10 doors you needed to knock on. The amount of capital and the number of suppliers of capital was very limited. And 
know, even in, in those days, I know a lot of founders who ended up then moving their organizations to the US or going to the US and finding some of the more active competitive investors from the West Coast to fund their businesses. That's changed massively. And I think, you know, that's driven by what's been happening in the US. And there's a trickle down or a follow on effect over here. Angel funding has become a thing and comes in all sorts of flavors, all sorts of stripes. There are organized angel syndicates. There are angels that act on their own. There are people now that have made huge amounts of money with exits from their own software companies that there are a large number of people that are quite happy to invest both capital and some expertise in in companies that they really like. And I think that the sort of first thing that happened was angel funding came out, then more people were seeing the winners in the tech sector in the software industry that were making money, that were going public, that were being sold for eye-watering amounts, uh, 50 million, 100 million back in the day when that was a huge amount. And for a billion dollars was a really, really, really unusual deal. So more money kind of moved into the asset class. More money means more funds. More money means bigger funds. As funds become successful, if you start off with a 50 million pound fund, your next fund is probably going to be 100. Your next fund is going to be two, 300 if it's successful. And investors like big funds because they get rewarded on the management fee that they get from the fund and then the money they make from the exits. So the, the economics of that change. So there's a huge amount of institutional capital. And there are also some very well-established, very well-known, very well-networked angels who actively invest on their own. And then will have funds in some of the venture funds that they then have good relationships with that can really kind of take those companies and move them on. Then you have private equity in different forms and private equity. I guess the, the difference in venture capital and private equity, if just thinking about this right now, private equity companies typically invest in a spreadsheet and venture capital companies invest in a PowerPoint. I mean by that, you know, when you're big, you're looking for those revenue lines, those cost lines, you want a business you can really understand, you can pick it apart and see what happens, see what assumptions you need to make to go off and build something different. Venture capital is different because you're investing in an idea and a vision and a belief in a founder and a team to go and do something. There's lots of softness around that. I'd say 20 years ago, a lot of VCs in the UK were trying to take the private equity approach of digging into a spreadsheet and there was no spreadsheet. So they would ask people for five-year projections and it's nonsense. So there's there's different different types of risk and different types of capital there. Then I suppose over the last five years, certainly, but five, 10 years, there've been a number of other really interesting sources of finance for software companies, revenue-based finance. So there's two two types of revenue-based finance in my view, although one of them's not called revenue-based finance. Revenue-based finance has come to mean banks or investors investing in the future cash flows of a 
business. The other type of revenue-based finance is actually going to customers and getting them to pay you for things. And I think, you know, that's because investing is a really easy thing to understand at a very superficial level and very easy to have a view on. And investors have deep pockets and they have PR firms and they control the narrative in the both the tech media and the wider media. And I don't say that as a criticism at all. You could be absolutely forgiven for thinking that tech companies start with a kid on a skateboard and a PowerPoint and they bump into an angel, gets them some funding, and then one of the big billion-dollar funds invests three or four rounds and suddenly they're a unicorn and they IPO. And, and those stories are really easy to write. You know, if you're, uh, if you're writing for the TechCrunch or the New York Times, you know, $600, $600 million for a dog walking app, the world has gone crazy and you can have your great story and you can write that one and you can write it both ways. You can do, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. What's the world coming to? Or you can do it as this just goes to show that the world is changing. But that misses out a vast, vast, vast number of companies that have set out to build an organization that serves their customers. They haven't really given a thought to funding because they've built a product, they've found customers to fund it, and they've built it from there. And that's a less talked about, but an incredibly important route to building an organization. I suppose one of the poster boys, poster children for that type of model is Atlassian, who are you know, essentially yep. bug tracking, based in Australia, uh, got to $100 million in revenue before they had any salespeople. And they were at $100 million revenue before they took any funding. They took $60 million funding from Axel, who were a very well-known West Coast VC. But it was a pretty unusual deal for Axel because they weren't investing in the company. That was literally money off the table for the founders. So it was a, a secondary rather than a primary investment. But they got to that point where they had significant optionality. They wanted to keep growing the business. They wanted to keep going, but they also... You know, use that that money not to fuel the growth because they had plenty of money to fuel the growth, but it de-risks the entrepreneur's portfolio because typically an entrepreneur has a portfolio of one company, which is the yeah. the one that they're running. Revenue-based finance is a, is a relatively new thing. People were sort of talking about it a little bit 10 years ago, but it's only the last less than five years that it's well, become... It feels so circular to where you started, which is that, you know, software has gone from hard to start, easier to scale to easy to start, harder to scale. And finance is a part of that story, right? You know, and yeah. particularly revenue-based finance is yeah. a part of that story, right? Like, it's like, yeah. you know, I don't have to necessarily have an angel network. I don't necessarily have to have a, a venture capitalist at my back. I, yeah. I, I could find the money I need. And, yeah. the, and the cost to start is less. So, so you've yeah. kind of like gone full and circle. Revenue-based finance is, is really <laughs> simple. I mean, it, it, it's a loan. And yeah. if you wanted a loan as a software entrepreneur 20 years ago, I don't know what the banks are like over on, on your side, but, you know, they would they go, oh, if I went to my local bank, they'd say, oh, how much is your house worth? And I'd say, 
half a million or something, and they go, okay, well, we'll lend you 400, and if it all goes wrong, I've got your house. Is that all right? Now, because SaaS is a much more predictable kind of revenue, and you uh, start to see businesses with uh, recurring, monthly recurring revenue, with repeat customers, with revenue growth, you start modeling that much, much more predictably. And as a SaaS company, as a as a subscription business, you can literally go to you know, a bunch of different organizations that will lend off your existing customers. Yeah, and existing cash flow, and you probably won't even need to meet somebody or talk to anybody to, to do it. And it's got to that point where you know, a lot of it is online now. So yeah, there's a lot of changes, I guess. All right. So before we run out of time, I want to get to the third thread of the conversation because I think this is the one that's going to be really interesting. So in our we setup, got, we, we talked about this. What, 40 seconds left then? We've got 40 seconds left. <laughs> so we got, we got to hit it fast. Okay. So we talked about this in the setup, this idea of moving from a consulting business to a product business. I'm, I'm leaving it open-ended, but like, I'd like you to talk about that. Like when, when you see firms try to make that leap, what Maybe why do they do well? I mean, why is obvious? A lot of them fail in my experience. I'm curious, like, talk to us about like why they fail and where they go wrong when they make that transition because they're deluded. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the. I'm curious before I, I give my answer, why you said it's, it's really obvious why they'd like to do it. In well, your experience, why yeah. do people want to do it? I think that what you just said a few minutes ago, which is that the idea that their professional services or consulting business is super lumpy and super unpredictable, and the idea that they can get predictability in a subscription or SaaS-based model is super appealing. And there's also this idea that we built this IP. It was really hard-earned to figure out how to build this like IP around whatever it is we do. And we can probably monetize that in more ways than, than we are to a broader audience. And we can serve, you know, instead of charging $500,000 to one client, we could charge you know, $50,000 a year to 100 clients or whatever the number is. So there's this vision that they can access a market that they can't currently access in their sort of like lumpy, customized, I'll, I'll use the, the British word, bespoke service delivery model, right? So that's what I think is that it's about, but you know, maybe I'm missing something. Is there something else I'm missing, Jeff or, or Mark, that, I, that you, know, you would see why they're going there? Jeff? Yeah, <laughs> you know, my hesitance is I, I hear my mom's voice. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. <laughs> I think ego drives it as well, right? Oh, yeah. Software is sexy. And I want to be yeah. part of this, this dynamic cool. industry. It's fun. I do think it is about driving annuity revenue, right? Predictable. Sexy one's big though, because also it's more valuable, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, like it's going to be valued at 30 times earnings or whatever versus the, yeah. the two you're yeah. getting. I mean, look, let's, let's start with it's easier, it's more valuable, and it's better for your ego. Because uh, I think yeah. all those three things are true in so much as that's quite often what people see. You're absolutely right. The multiples on, well, I don't know what the multiples on professional services businesses are. They're pretty high margin organizations, but as you quite rightly say, you don't get the valuations on exit 
all the multiples on exit that you work with SaaS companies. Uh, software SaaS is kind of sexy these days. You know, it's, oh, he's a tech entrepreneur or, you know, he's doing this mm-hmm. or she's doing this, you know, really cool SaaS for XYZ. So there is, I think, a, a degree of social cachet around that. And as you say, people have put a lot of time and thought, albeit on someone else's dime, in investing in what is essentially uh, intellectual property. But it feels like you should be able to use that much more than you do. I think it's much harder than that. So you're absolutely right. The difference between a services and a product model is, you know, sell once, build once, and build once, sell multiple times. I think fundamentally services businesses and product businesses are very different and require different infrastructure, different operational skills, different mindsets. Let's think about the you're building something to help out a client. You're very rarely building something that exists in a vacuum. You've got probably some appalling SAP system to integrate into or a there's 15 different legacy systems that you've got in an organization and what you are coming in doing as a, as a services organization is trying to rationalize some piece of a data cleansing operation or a, an integration or you know, building something that's really going to solve a problem that solves the existing issues which are really caused by the Frankenstein's monster of a system that they have set up already. And I'm absolutely not saying that that is not hard. It is. And the reason that you can charge a deal of money for it is that very few people can can work it out. But, you know, as a services business, you're very rarely bought into an organization say, hey, we've got all these systems over there, but we just want to start again with everything. Because that just doesn't work. So you have that challenge, I think, as a, as a service business in the first place of building this stuff and you can see how it works. And there's this light bulb moment in the process of building it and making it work where you think, actually, this is really useful for other people. But that IP, that kernel, that piece of software that you have built for that client, or you've got some core thing that you're modifying for different clients, isn't necessarily going to stand on its own as a product. And product businesses tend to have, I mean, they have to be obviously very well designed. They have to be offering a product that's probably 10 times better than the existing solutions that people are using because everyone knows that any technology integration is hard, any software changes, any configurations are hard. And you've got this kind of challenge of it's very rarely the very large organizations or the larger organizations that are employing software consultants who are the early adopters of new products, particularly SaaS products. Mm. And you have I mean, Clayton Christensen's, he did a great talk about this at Business of Software Conference, which you can Google pretty straightforwardly, the, the disruptive innovation thing. And he talks about radios and transistor radios and how actually, you know, in the 50s, valve radios were the things and they were the size of cupboards and 
dad had them and hi-fi, high, high fidelity sound and little transistor radios came along and they were really kind of poor. But teenagers loved them because they could listen to their own bits of music. But what happens to teenagers? They grow up. And the cost of transistors came down, the quality of transistor radios, the quality of the sound drives up. The teenagers grow up, they get more money and they start spending more. And the 1950s, I think there were 10,000 different valve companies in the US. I'm not sure there's one now. And that whole industry just sort of ignored the market, um, the transistor market, and they really suffered very, very significantly uh, as a result. So I do think you have this kind of dynamic where if you are a service business, you're typically working with larger, more established organizations, and you're working within the constraints that they have. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, Principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. That was actually what I wrote down. I was thinking about the the, you know, the consulting firms often build their IP with really large organizations with you know unique problems and a custom solution, and then they assume that that extrapolates down yeah. to a smaller organization, and then they miss the mark. It's like they make this leap. It worked here. Of course, it's going to work in a small organization. That's simpler. Yeah. But it's different. Yeah. So I think you know, other, other things that I see and other challenges people come up against is you can have brilliant consultants who really understand the problems and the challenges and how to solve them. And they're not necessarily product people. And I think, you know, there is that sort of, there's a different way of thinking. There's a different mindset. There's a potentially a slightly more utopian view from a product person. They kind of think, oh, you know, what if the world was different? And I think, you know, getting those software companies, those SaaS products off the ground is a different thing to going in and selling a large enterprise level, 100 500, 10 million, 50 million dollar project. So you have to change mindset and you have to be prepared to really invest in the long term and try some things that might seem a bit weird to a services business, you know, and and most services businesses are very relationship driven and you know a lot of the people in the organizations you're working with. And I think, you know, product businesses and maybe have to think much more about how do you capture the essence of what you're doing and write about it and talk about it and position it so that other people can understand, you know, I think, you know, the simplicity that comes with great software, you know, and that jobs to be done thinking, rethinking the, the, the challenges that an organization has and thinking of ways that you can meet those demands is important. I think you know, as you build software, and I see this a lot with consultancies, people don't give it enough time and they've got projects over here that are, here's a million, here's Four people paying $40 a month. 
somewhere, right? Probably forty dollars is not. I mean, probably the best piece of advice for any software company that you can give is put the prices up as early as you can as possible. But like building a SaaS company, if you get it right, you get exponential growth, and exponential growth takes a very long time to come. And so you have this mindset thing of okay, million, ten million over here. That didn't quite cover our hosting this month. What are we going to do? And we had five people on it. And so you've got to have the patience. You've got to have the time. I think, you know, you've got to have people that have a product mindset. And you probably have to think about ways of making some big, hard innovation, development, growth decisions that might feel painful at times. Now, this isn't something that's a unique problem for service companies. And I know uh, there are a huge number of software companies that started as enterprise software and then wanted to move into SaaS or SaaS companies that then realized that everything that they built was just not up to the job of scaling to where they are today. And I mean, it's a common and really it's a problem that recurs everywhere, but it is a challenge to move from one delivery platform, whether that's building and developing services for single customers at a high margin or actually taking an existing product and seeing the way the world is going and building a new product that matches that. And a a great story, actually, again, someone else that's spoken a business to software on this exact topic. Have you come across a company called FreshBooks? Oh, yeah. So Mike McDermott in FreshBooks is a small business accounting software solution, built, very successful, grew, scaled, got more and more and more customers. They knew quite early on that they had to refactor and redo the whole platform and redo the platform. And they had a few goes at it and they approached it in a number of different ways. They hired a very expensive, very experienced, very successful CTO from Silicon Valley, who over the course of 18 months was leading the project to create the new solution. And I think, you know, that cost about $4 million, the whole thing, and it really didn't go anywhere. And they tried all sorts of different operations. And meanwhile, you know, there were more nimble SaaS solutions that were being created that were starting to compete with them. So Mike did a really interesting thing, which is create a skunkworks operation. And I think there's some really interesting lessons here for services businesses as well. Um, he took a very small group of people, like four or five, one from outside and some from within the team. He went and put them in a different office. So they weren't actually in the company. They were completely removed from the day to day. He set up a new company on the quiet, did all sorts of uh, stuff, uh, let's say behind the scenes. I don't think it's, it's ingenious rather than disingenuous, but uh, the idea was, okay, let's put a really good team of people onto building a product that works for where we want to be in the future. And that team built a product. They launched it. It was nothing to do with FreshBooks. It was a SaaS solution. They started to do all the things that the old product couldn't. And really the first time that anybody at um, FreshBooks knew about the organization was when they started losing deals. They were losing deals to, you know, to the themselves. new platform. Wow. 
So they've been given the time, the resource, you know, the trust to go off and do something. And you know, for a year, they saw absolutely nothing. And I mean, it, those individuals were costing the company money and they were really not getting any results. But that's a really interesting way of doing it. But now, however you make that leap, you have to commit. You yeah. don't have to commit Every, you don't have to bet the company. I mean, there's that. But you do have to take a look at the market and you have to invest properly. It strikes me that that story is one of, and the lesson for services firms is that they're used to quick gratification, right? You sell a yeah. deal for a million dollars, you're going to get $200,000 in profit and you're in year one. And here it's like, you know, you got to invest $5 million now in the hopes that you're going to get that $200,000, $300,000 stream three or four years from now. And, yeah. and so that, you know, like, and that maybe is their, their mistake. Number one is just not being able to change their mindset on the relationship between investment and, and returns. Yeah. And, and they are different. And I think it's very beguiling yeah. to look at SaaS companies and software companies and go, wow, they make so much money and their valuations are incredible. And yeah. hey, why on earth are we doing all this stuff and getting all this crap from the people we're talking to? And you know, But don't forget that the investors own the narrative. So I think it's really important to understand that venture capital is neither necessary nor evil. A lot of people think it, you know, you have to have it to build a business. A lot of people absolutely hate it because they think it's a blood-sucking vampire. Neither of those two things are true. Venture capital is a relatively rational way of providing capital to organizations that want to scale in a certain way. It doesn't suit everybody. There are lots of other ways of getting funding. But if a lot of the information you're getting in the media is this company's worth a billion or this guy's bought a gigantic offshore kingdom underwater where they can swim with porpoises and you know, whatever it you know those are the those are the stories that I think that, that was Jeff's first venture pollute. you know there's this like huge survivor bias and yes. You know, that that some of the most brilliant entrepreneurs I know, some of the most successful and actually happy entrepreneurs I know have built a, an organization that you know, they've set out to do it in a different way and they've really thought about their goals and the purpose of the company. And it's it's very rarely to make a load of money. If you do the right things, you will end up with all the money you possibly need. You know, Jeff, I feel like that's a recurring theme of this podcast. We always come back to this idea that like whatever we're talking about, whether it's thought leadership, marketing, when the objective is selfless, when the objective is to create something better for clients, create more value for clients, came up in our value creation series, right? Again and again, it comes up. This idea that when your objective is not centered on you and your success, it's centered on somebody else, they always end up better for it. Maybe we should yeah. make that the new theme of the podcast. <laughs> I, I like that. That's that's good for business. That's good for, for individuals. Mark, I know we're getting to the end here. I want to kind of maybe pull this together and then throw a, a grenade in the middle of it. Seems a little extreme, but okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> building, building I'm in love and not a fighter. <laughs> Jason's point about focus on the client and the value is, is spot on. Uh, but you also... 
you made this comment about seeing the direction the world is going. Mm. I just I just read an article from Scott Brinker, a great article, and probably it's great because it reinforces my worldview, confirmation bias. Mind you, Mark, every article I send him that doesn't you know reaffirm his worldview, he says is terrible and, and, and crap. <laughs> and throws it Don't read those articles. Uh, yeah, exactly. Why are you sending me this? Okay, okay. all right. So we've established Sorry. I'm human. I'm human. No, oh, yeah, you're right. That's fair. And, and when I do strategy work for clients, there's always a starting point in terms of, and, and you just alluded to this, in terms of where the software company started, whether it's highly customizable, if it's on-premise or in the cloud or wherever, and software has a certain value. But my point is, I have seen the software industry move from suites of product, holistic, as you said early on, to best in breed, yeah. to now where it's whole platforms and ecosystems. Yeah. And it's almost like as a result of that, the software companies are becoming professional services firms because customer success and client retention is so important. They want to make the software stickier and people getting more value out of it. So now they're looking at their software from a service perspective. And as we've already established, the consultancies are looking for ways Mm -hmm. to integrate these various softwares in these ecosystems. And now they're thinking like software firms. What are your thoughts on kind of this this circle and, and, and how services and software combining from that perspective? Can you just explain what you mean by services companies thinking like software firms? If, if we look at the different types of firms, and there's they're all hybrids anymore, yeah. but generally... You know, the consulting firms, the tech consulting firms have some kind of system integration capability. Yeah. And the productization is coming out of those system integrations, right? Because it's like, oh, you need an API. We've already developed that plug and play. Let's get rocking and rolling. And you're starting to see them kind of position those APIs as a functional API, an industry based. API or whatever, and now we have the start of a product. Yes, uh, I think that's it's the start of a product. I don't know a huge number of service companies that have built platform level software. You know, have built platforms that really kind of do this sort of stuff as successfully as they might make out. Now, I'm not going to name names, but think of any of the top twenty systems integration businesses in the world, they will all have what they describe as proprietary software stuff that they have developed. They probably don't have very many clients or users of that software that aren't their customers. Uh, I think there's absolutely been this drive of all software companies to build platforms and create ecosystems. and, And that's a very compelling thing. But again, platforms are incredibly expensive, difficult things to build. And, you know, there are successful ones. I mean, Salesforce is a 
like great example of a business that is is very integrated into existing organizations also has a very successful sales operation that is 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 you know opening up new markets it then has a complete ecosystem of developers and consultants mm-hmm. and people who are you know and those are really successful you know what i would say semi open platforms I struggle with that kind of concept a little bit of the larger integration and businesses and consulting businesses uh, having software. What they have is, in my view, and I, you know, I don't know enough about this to have an opinion, so I should have shut up about two minutes ago, but they tend to have things that they can say, yes, we've done this for connecting this, this, and this, and this type of organization several times. So when we know what we're doing, I think, you know, a lot of those things are glue rather than software products. As a, yeah. I don't want to be mean to them. Yeah. I mean, no. they're very successful businesses, but I'd be curious to ask you actually, I mean, have you seen any fantastic pieces of software or software platforms that have come out of a consulting driven business? Well, it's funny because it's it's a weird answer, but there was a development partner that we worked with that I actually I thought built the most brilliant web-based CMS I'd ever seen. It was such a beautifully built product, so well designed and so thoughtfully architected on what it did and how it did it. But they shut it down because WordPress won the day, right? Like WordPress yeah. has become the most pervasive thing on the planet. And they realized that they couldn't compete in that world. And so they, so it's like, you have to argue in that instance, it's like, yes, they built a beautiful piece of software that was phenomenal that I loved. And a lot of people loved, but not enough people to matter. So they didn't build a a compelling business. So it kind of comes full circle back to, I guess I'll just kind of give a slight plug to you, the business of software. It's one thing to brew it. I think these firms build beautiful software sometimes, but they don't necessarily build a business out of that software. Yeah. And I think that's the the, the fundamental problem. And I come back to, I'll I'll share one last question, one last story. A a friend of mine owns a a software company in California that specializes in, it's an intranet platform for architecture engineering firms. And when he started the company, he, he basically had a hypothesis, which was that an intranet should be a product, not a service. And he went into it with the mindset from the very beginning was that this is going to be a product and it should be a product. And it was a belief that it could be a product. So he didn't go into it and say, well, let me build some custom intranets and then try to build a product out of it. He started at the very beginning with a belief on this is where this needs to go and I'm going to build it. And to your point, I laugh. He told me once, he's like, you know, some of those early deals I sold off a PowerPoint, we didn't have anything yet. We were just selling like, you know, a a vision of something to a customer and it was customer finance because the customer bought in. It's just interesting. So we probably have to go to wrap. I hate to do it because I've actually found this like really, really enjoyable and really interesting. And, you know, I, I feel like we covered, you know, 25 years of software history in, in like 50 minutes or whatever. And it was amazing. Wow. So. I, hey, I really had fun. You are some great, I mean, just challenging and thoughtful and interesting, really. I mean, and it's great having these kind of conversations because it helps you think through some of your own perspectives and some of your own thoughts. And I think yeah. we're all very tied up in the day-to-day and the, what's going on in the morning and then the afternoon. And you, it's a bit like children growing up until you kind of look back and go, wow, they were babies <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> you realize how far they've come. They just get a little bit more annoying every day. And then... Um, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> 
teenagers. Oh, that's funny. That's what Jeff says about me. That's true. So, Mark, for our listeners that want to follow you and the business of software, where can they find you and some of these great conferences that have speakers like Clayton Christensen? The easiest thing to do is to go to our website, which is businessofsoftware.org. If you go to businessofsoftware.org slash talks, we have a whole load of the uh, previous talks going back to 2008 on video with transcripts and slides and things like that. I always say that if people sign up to the mailing list, they get an email, a welcome email, and we ask them, because we've got about 400 plus hours of Jeffrey Moore and all sorts of fantastic people talking. When you sign up to the mailing list, we ask if you've got a particular issue, a particular challenge you're thinking about, drop us a line and we'll put a little playlist together for you to try and help. So I think a lot of events, a lot of conferences, a lot of people, a lot of people in the software industry have a, oh, hey, listen to what I say, follow what I do and do it to the letter. And if you fail, it's your fault. So here's my ultimate playbook. I just think that's nonsense. And the, the thing that I would like to do and be remembered for more than anything else is to help people ask the right questions. And that requires a bit of thought and introspection and discussion and thinking. Raising venture capital and scaling to be a billion dollar business is not the only way. There are lots of other ways of making things happen, having an impact and being successful and happy. So yeah, we really try and help people think stuff through. But businessofsoftware.org and then talks is where all the talks are and there's other good stuff there as well and i highly recommend it i've been a follower for coming on a decade here so well mark thank you so much for joining us it was truly a pleasure and i hopefully that you know we elevated your quidditch reputation i'm afraid that my british reputation or my reputation is forever sullied by me personally i have to take the blame for that so there's not much i can do but it was a real pleasure and really really lovely to speak and we'll talk again i hope yeah absolutely thank you so much Mark. thank you mark Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.